Welcome to Vocal Revolution, Change the World with Your Voice. And it's just an extraordinary honour to have with me today, Helen Chadwick, who I have had the honour of knowing for 10 years now. Uh, I just want to give her a brief introduction before we welcome her onto the show. Helen is uh, an amazing, extraordinary creator of work and song is at the heart of all of her work. She works with teams of collaborators to create concerts, recordings, song theatre performances, song story performances, community opera and site-specific choral events. Her songs and performances are full of stories and include settings of many of the world's poets, interviews and her own original lyrics. Helen creates shows which she calls song theatre, as all of them have songs at their heart and yet are theatre, but they're not what we know of as music theatre. These include Dalston songs, War Correspondence and Truth, which have toured nationally, and her site-specific choral commissions include The Singing Circle at Royal Opera House, Where Two Worlds Touch, Salisbury Festival, and The Singing and the Body of Song at Greenwich Festival. She's also collaborated with Sally Pom Clayton on The Singing Bones, the song story version of the Finnish epic poem, The Kalevala, and with Hugh Lupton on several duos and performances. Helen has composed for English Touring Opera, the BBC, Royal Shakespeare Company, National Theatre, the Royal Court and the British Museum. She's recorded 10 albums and one of her tracks featured on Desert Island Discs. She's also sung with Meredith Monk, Human Music, Voice Lab, Kite and on the film Troy. In 2002, Helen founded Sing for Water with the Thames Festival Trust, bringing together choirs to sing together and fundraise for Water Aid. Since then, events have taken place nationally and internationally, often in inventive places such as swimming pools and piers, raising over 1.2 million for water aid projects, which help to bring clean water to some of the world's poorest communities. And Helen received the President's Award from WaterAid for this project. She's also been awarded an honorary fellowship from Dartington College of Arts. So, Helen, thank you. It's just such an honor to have you here today, and particularly special because we've just celebrated the 20th anniversary of Sing for Water together at the Scoop last weekend in the rain. So, thank you so much for coming and being here. It's just lovely to have you. Thanks so much for welcoming me here. Katie and you and I are friends we know each other well and we've been working in parallel for some time so it's lovely to have a conversation with you about what we make. Absolutely and to we hope as well um, share some things that will be of use to all of you listening today and thank you for listening and or tuning in or watching on YouTube however and wherever you are thank you for listening to us and I'm sure this is going to be a really enriching episode hearing Helen's amazing wealth of experience around song and voice and theatre um, so tell us a little bit about your story Helen um, any key moments or inspirations you'd like to share that you would say uh, have been absolutely turning point for you or in your understanding of voice? I think one turning point was meeting and working with Meredith Monk. So Meredith Monk, the American songwriter, composer, and also with a big background in dance, who wrote um, very famous albums, for example, Dolman Music, and who is still working today with her ensemble in New York. And she came to Wales many years ago and collaborated with, I think we were 17 or 15 singers. Maybe there were 15 of us from the UK and there were two of her singers with her. And we rehearsed her music. She had a programme she'd fixed. We rehearsed it for two weeks and then we toured it for two weeks. So I got to watch her working with a group. And like her, I'm used to running, I'd run already lots and lots of singing workshops. So I was used to empowering people to sing. And at the same time, I was already making shows. I've got a background in theatre. And it was fascinating to watch this combination between encouragement and very exigent, you know, very demanding about what she wanted to hear. And also to see her make something with a large group of people. And that really inspired me. And I thought, I'm never going to be her. But if she, if I can watch her doing that, then I could also make things. And after that, 
I'd already been making theatre, I'd already done solo shows, but after that I made my first, what I think of as, actually I don't know if it was the first, I'd probably made a duo before then, but it was the first choral song work that I made. So it was called The Blazing Heart and it had a Russian story at the heart there was initially a storyteller and then later I composed that story for myself with myself and the drums. So I was like the singing storyteller going through those old traditions of sung stories that exist in so many parts of the world. And then I had a choir, an amateur choir that I'd put together who were, who learnt certain numbers of songs. And then I had a small group of soloists that I knew who did other songs. And that's a format that I've, used since and not necessarily with a storytelling element but where I've made choral works either with small groups for special spaces or with an amateur choir involved sometimes using space uh, when I later started to work with choreographers because my childhood was full of dance and so I absolutely love to move and singing with moving fascinates me and so that's why that collaboration developed out of pure choral works into something that was nearer to theatre, which is my background. And my dance teacher was anyway extremely theatrical. So it was kind of continuing something that I'd learnt from her. Wow, that's such a wonderful uh, journey, a melting pot of influences that you've uh, drawn upon and, and created your own version from as well. And this whole idea of, I love the idea of, and it is very obvious in your work about how you choose space and certainly the performances I've been to, I came to war correspondence underneath it, um, underneath the Maritime Museum, wasn't it? And the use of space, the fact that we felt like we were in a bunker was so appropriate for the, the, the topic of the show. Um, so this whole idea of setting pieces in incredible spaces, uh, is there other examples of, of spaces you've loved working in? I, yes, a couple. So the first one being Salisbury Cathedral. So I worked with another composer, Howard Moody, and we were making something called Where Two Worlds Touch. And it was about the commonality between the way the mystics see the world and the fact that mystics from multiple traditions often see things the same way, even if the form of religion sees things different ways. And we were particularly focusing on the Sufi tradition in terms of Rumi and Hafiz, those poets who uh, have this joyously broad view of, of the spiritual life, if you like. And what was so amazing for me in there was we had a, a more formal choir, a community choir, uh, five, four brass instruments and a percussionist. We had four professional soloists kind of downstairs in the nave. So there was a kind of show end. And then there was, I wrote something, it has a massive echo, Salisbury Cathedral. I can't remember how many seconds it is, but it's huge. And so I wrote a piece that's in quotes, uh, heterophony. So that just very simply means that you don't have to sing it at the same time. And it's influenced by the tradition from the Isle of Lewis, where you get uh, a lead singer, like a psalm singer, and then the congregation kind of falls over it in rolls and so I wrote something that was using that form whilst the choirs the choir kind of moved through the space so depending on where you were you heard different parts of it and the other thing that was amazing about working in that space was I took two soloists that I worked very closely with uh, Barbara Gellhorn and Victoria Cooper and we I adapted three songs that I'd written that were Hafiz or Rumi that I'd written for myself that are part of my solo shows and you know they're on albums as solo performances with body percussion and I arranged those as trios and then we sang them halfway up the west window on this tiny little ledge with I think there was a little bit of glass in front of us but you were literally looking a very long way down and we sang these three trios and what was so amazing was that those lyrics were crystal clear and everybody could hear them. Whereas downstairs, it was much harder for the public to hear the words because everything kind of washed into a thing. And you realise that the architects 
understood why we have musicians' galleries. So that was very, very joyful. And the other place was the, well, actually two other places. So the, the first one I made before that one was A Body of Song. And I really want to thank all of the people who've ever commissioned me uh, because without them making things happen, none of it happens. And so in this case, it was Bradley Hemmings who runs Greenwich and Docklands Festival. At the time, it was simply Greenwich Festival. And he heard an album. I'd made some recordings and I suppose I sent one to him. And he called me into his office and he said, what do you want to make? And so I described something, you know, that I had this idea about site specific and moving people around and so on and so on. And then we went hunting for spaces and he offered me the Queen's House, which is a perfect cube in Greenwich. It's, I think it's 40 foot by 40 foot by 40 foot. And it has this black and white round patterned marble floor. I mean, it's, it's a square floor, but the pattern has a circle in the middle of it. Then it has a doorway outside there. It has, I think it's four doorways here. And then out of that doorway, there's a spiral circle. Uh, staircase and then upstairs there are three balconies and then this wall is all windows so I made something with myself included nine soloists so there were six women in the first part of it and then three men came through the the far door uh, for the last section of the piece and I I choreographed it when I say choreographed Yes, I did. I, sh- I shaped the way we used the space with what sound. So we started on the balconies and then we sang down the spiral staircase. And then we used, you know, walking through each other in lines and making circles and uh, facing in and facing out. And anyway, we just made a whole shape that moved through that performance. And I utterly loved doing it. And then later I... Um, as you know, I've made, you mentioned me making some theatre. So later, thanks to an album, again, I was very, very lucky that somebody said to me, there's a development wing at the Royal Opera House. So I sent them an album and that's a different story, but I then made Dalston songs there. But the, the after I was ma- on already making Dalston songs, they were having a festival in the Floral Hall. And the Floral Hall is the old... Uh, flower market in Covent Garden and it has an enormous window this shape I mean huge I don't know how high it is and then it has a floor it has a balcony halfway up this wall it has two balconies where the restaurant is and then it has a champagne bar in the middle at the time it was a different champagne bar to the one that they have in there now but that champagne bar comes to bits So they basically put the champagne bar in the corner and I went in there and they said, you know, will you make something for this? I don't know how I got the luck to do that. I was so happy. And so I asked them, I said, yes, I know what I want. I want two bollards. I want um, something that is, I can't remember the dimensions now, but let's say it was eight eight foot in diameter circle at one foot and then five foot in diameter circle on top of that Um, another foot so basically you could have a trio or a quartet of singers in the middle at the top you could have all the men I had an amateur choir you could have all the men we had them sitting we had them working with that whole space we could have a soloist walk in from the side and just take charge in the middle we could have we had one song where all the men were on this balcony and all the women they moved all the restaurant tables for us the whole thing was empty And all the women were on these balconies uh, with myself and somebody else reflecting, conducting the the choir. That was quite a highlight of the piece. We had people calling across. And then the other thing I had was four, uh, known as rostra, you know, four blocks that were, I think, square rather than, usually they're six foot six by four foot, but I think these ones were probably square, I don't remember. And I had four in each corner. And then I had the the choirs, sorry, I had the audience in four circles of chairs with these bollards in the middle, and I had three entrances. So the choirs could move through, you know, go around the bollards, move out, 
So what was so amazing for the public was, I think of it as a surround sound event, that the public, were they had people above them, around them, through them. They had choirs outside and soloists in the middle or choirs in the middle and solos outside or above. And at the, I, it was such a, we, we, it was 25 minutes long. It was a short piece and we did it three times on one day. And every time people stood up and a lot of people wept actually. And I think it was the power of being surrounded by sound and having, and also the topic of that piece, the subject matter, it was about the commonality, celebrating commonality and difference in London. So I invited a Bosnian choir and we had Bulgarian soloist, we had a Kurdish soloist, we had a, an Algerian soloist, I had uh, some of my close team, uh, we had an Iranian soloist. So it was about kind of celebrating these different people and sounds and traditions that, that coexist in London and that create, make London such an extraordinary city. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Oh, wow. I, I would love to have been in that surround sound experience. It sounds so moving. And I know you thanked your commissioners, but I, I should imagine they were so grateful to you, Helen, for bringing such extraordinary, innovative, imaginative performance into their space. And the audience must have felt, as you say, incredibly moved and surrounded by the stories that you were telling and the through, through song and this idea of song theatre being, obviously, space being one component, you know, where is the theatre, where is the song, where is the story happening, and how you use space being one um, element of that. But could you say a bit more about what is song theatre and how it evolved for you? Uh, it sounds so incredibly magical, but how do you conceive of that as um, behind the overarching principles behind the amazingly diverse shows that you create? Yes. I think I also want to just name the people who made that happen. So John Lloyd Davis was running the development wing in opera, and he's the person that really brought me in. And then Deborah Bull, who had been a dancer, was running ROH2, and she and her producer, Alison Duffy. And between the three of them, I was lucky enough to make work. And also on that one, although I'd conceived the shape of that one, there was a choreographer that I wanted to work with for some time who I'd met through working with him. I'd gone in to do voice work for DV8, the theater, physical theatre company, physical dance theatre company, run by Lloyd Newsom. And that was Liam Steele. So Liam Steele actually worked with the dancers in deep, with the performers, the singers in detail about, uh, you know, um, gesture and also about you know we knew they had to get upstairs during that song and he would actually organize how it happened so you know we so we worked very closely together on that wow. so in terms of song theater I actually have been making it much longer than I've used that title so my background was in community theater and then I made a solo show which was actually song theater it was a series of songs and it was theatre and and then a duo show with somebody which is probably the nearest to what I think of as making we worked with the Basque Claire Hughes worked with the Basque theatre director and it was uh, it was really full-on song actually we didn't speak at all in that so it was full-on song but the whole thing was it was way it was it was called Songs for the Four Parts of the Night and it was kind of watching the night and watching the passage of the souls of the dead through the night. Sounds very, very odd. Wow. In those days, you could have candles on stage. <laughs> and we toured that. We went to Colombia with it in Spain and we, we had that show for 10 years. And because no, but we weren't videoing or I'm lucky enough to have a few beautiful photographs from that show, but there isn't a record. So recently under lockdown it's been a pleasure to find those old photographs and digitize them and be able to kind of go oh, there was this show you know because it's like a missing piece of history because of when it was made mm. and then after I worked with Liam I had this commission as I mentioned earlier at the Royal Opera House Dawson Songs and what happened was that I'd had some 
Another person who really helped me was Tom Morris, who used to run Battersea. And Tom's the person who invented Scratch. Now you get kind of, oh, let's do some half-made shows everywhere. Actually, Tom had the idea and it started at Battersea. And I, I did a concert at Battersea and he also said, what do you want to make? Which is an amazing thing for a producer to say. The best producers are like that, where they see somebody has something and they just go, how can I nurture that? And you can nurture that by giving that person space to do what they need to create, you know. And uh, so I'd done some, he helped me, he gave me some space. Then we got some Arts Council money with his wonderful co co-person Emma Stenning they've been running Bristol Vic uh, recently and he's still there and uh, I made a, a, a kind of version of Dolson songs so when I say Dolson songs I interviewed my neighbours in the East End in Dolston where I lived in my street and a few other people and from those interviews I made songs and I made a song cycle and then Liam the same choreographer who I worked with uh, staged that and then when I got the commission from the Opera House to do that because they'd heard the albums and they'd seen us do a couple of concerts and they worked out I had a theatre background um, he wasn't free and he suggested first of all another choreographer that I was like who asked me about how they were going to be accredited and I thought oh I can't work anyone who's only wants to do the job because of how they're going to be credited and then he said oh, you need my friend Steve and he came to see the showing anyway and since then, I worked with Stephen Hoggett, who is a wonderful theatre uh, choreographer. And so I really think that's a collaboration that we make those shows together. So Dalston Songs, all of those shows, Dalston Songs, War Correspondence and Truth are all made from interviews. So what happens is I have an idea. I take it to Stephen and go, what do you think? I've had an idea about making a show. And he goes, good idea. And then... Or, or I've already got, in the case of Dalston, I've already got all the material, I've got the songs, and then he showed up. But with the other shows, they were together. And so I think the way it's worked is, in my case, and obviously there are other people making their own versions of what I would also call song theatre, um, whether they call it that or not. But the way that we work together is not like um, London Road, so there's a musical, London Road, which is based on the story of some prostitutes who were killed in Ipswich. And that, um, the music for that, is written exactly in time to the way the interviews are. So the singing is in time. So if I said to you, oh, I love the lighting, then the music wrote, oh, I love the lighting, and it had the same rhythm. Whereas I wasn't doing that, and I wasn't trying to reproduce what I was told. What I was doing was selecting... Uh, the key passages, or in the case of war correspondence, there were several very important topics that came up in the interview that I wanted to highlight. So I knew that there had to be something about the danger, for example, a very simple topic. I knew there had to be something about post-traumatic stress disorder or the wider picture around that. So sometimes I would take sections of an interview and sometimes an interview would become a whole song. Uh, and then from that, I would write a song which wasn't connected to the rhythm of how they spoke and then those songs would go into a rough order and get talked to the singers. And then Stephen would then stage that. And because I was also a performer, at that point, although we're still totally collaborating, collaborating together, he becomes more like a director. Uh, so it was slightly different to what I did for Greenwich with the Queen's House because we weren't being anything more than singers in that we were just populating the sound and the space in the same way we did the Royal Opera House for Singing Circle, that I wasn't trying to tell somebody's story. They, they had topics. They absolutely had subject matter. But it wasn't, uh, you know, in the case of war correspondence, they are, we were all war correspondents. And there's a, the thing that made me happiest about that is, the response of some of the correspondents who did manage to come, some of the UK correspondents managed to come. And uh, that was just so heartening because I think so much of drama about war correspondence or film or TV is kind of dramatising it mm. and, you know, uh, kind of painting rather, trying to make them look bigger. Yeah. There was just something very simple about 
making songs out of their work, words, and then the way that Stephen staged it was extremely theatrical, but we weren't making it theatrical. It, you mm. know, it was, it was very powerful material because of what they'd given us. Yes. But we didn't need to try and enhance it and make it into more interesting than it was, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm hearing that, you know, the, the the core elements are the stories or the subject. Sometimes the story might be, as you say, subject matter or topics and and the, the what the content of the interviews that you're working with and then and the topics and themes you're working and then pulling out of that. And then you've got the staging, the space, and then of course the delivery of everything through song. Um and do you do most of the coaching around the song if if your choreographer is doing the directing spatially are you how are you directing people around voice Helen is that your main role would you say so initially yes always you know so um singing circle I'd love it if I'd had a, a musical director but actually I did it and I'm not a very good pianist, so I think some of the singers who showed up at the choir were like, she doesn't really know what she's doing. And also because I need to make stuff on people. So I come with ideas and then I try them out and then I go, oh, I tell you what, I'll write an extra verse and let's change the spacing of that. So I don't tend to show up with the finished article where I go, right, you go over there and you do this and you do that and this is how it goes. And lots of people are not used to being inside that creative process. They're used to showing up something that's, you know, let's sing Verdi's Requiem and there it is and that's how it is and we're not going to change it and why would you sort of thing. But because these are often pieces which are being created for the first time and I even, that's sometimes the case even with performers. So when we did uh, Truth, we were in Birmingham. So this based on interviews with, actually this is slightly different I emailed a lot of people and I said, would you like to send me, all over the world actually, would you like to send me a story about a moment in your life where you told the truth or you lied and the impact of doing that on your life? And we were doing the, the tech rehearsals and the dress rehearsals and opening it in Birmingham Rep in their, I don't know what it's called, the studio theatre or something. And when we were looking for the, in the few days before we went to Birmingham and tech is a very, very, the technical rehearsals in theatre, they are for tech. They are for the lighting. They are for the sound. They are for costumes. They are for design. They're not actually to rehearse. Mm. So normally you fix everything before you get to tech, even if you make minor changes, because it's not for the performers. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously the performers need to know where their things are, but that's not the issue. It's not whether you sing anything well. And the, in the days before we went to Birmingham, I had an, I knew that one of the big fat songs with these quotes from Gandhi and Faulkner and other writers needed to be right near the end. It's called um, Never Be Afraid. And it's about speaking up for truth. And I knew it had to be near the end. And so I think three days before we went to Birmingham, we tried it at the end. So we ran the show, we tried it at the end. And Stephen and I both knew that it wasn't right. And so overnight, I thought, I came in with another ending. So we rehearsed that, we tried that. And I knew that wasn't quite right either. And the performers were starting to say, we need to know what's happening because yeah. performers need security, it's normal. But I knew it wasn't right. And what's so fantastic working with Stephen is we trust each other. So he knows that I will find the right solution. And similarly with choreography, that when we were working on Dalston, we were in, we were in the late rehearsals and we had this one big song called Strange Land. And he said, I don't know what to do with it. I said, I don't mind. I know you will know what to do with it. If you, if you just have a standing still, that'll be fine. If you fix it in tech, that'll be fine. If you fix it off the first preview, I just don't mind. I just know that when his instincts are right, they are so right. And he knows that about me, that he trusts my musical instincts. So in fact, the following night, I had another idea about how to end it. And that was the right ending. And that was actually to do this very simple um, wake up the truth chorus 
wake up, oh, wake up, the truth got to wake up, oh, wake up, the truth. Wake up, oh, wake up, the truth got to wake. And then there's two other parts under that going, wake up, the truth in harmony. So there's these harmonies under that. And we did a very, very slow, very slow fade out. And the lights were doing, actually, we sang Beyond the Light Fade. And it was the right, I really wanted people to come out with, come out singing something in their heart, even if they weren't actually singing it. And it was very, very simple. And therefore, it made it very memorable. And it's from actually a really powerful story, which came to me very late in those rehearsal periods, which I didn't, I wasn't able to fit it in. It was too, we were too late in rehearsals to have a whole new piece then but it's actually on the album that I've been working in so it was from a a Spanish friend who's also my neighbor who I also interviewed for Dawson songs and I inter I interviewed her for truth and I she said oh how long do you need and I said oh 15 or 20 minutes I'll be fine and an hour and a quarter later she was still talking wow. and she's a person who discovered that in her village in Asturias in the north of Spain a lot of um that murder had happened um, that had been hidden. And in recent years, I think it, about 10 years ago, it started to come up there. I, I'm not an expert on this, by the way. So if I've got the exact dates wrong, but a lot of, a lot of really bad things happened that were hidden and, and mass graves and so on in Spain uh, under, under Franco after the civil war. And so she discovered this uh, and she's been living in, she was my neighbour for 20 years or something. And she discovered that this had been going on. And she said in that interview, one of many things, which is part of the song that I've been working on, I want to wake up the truth. And I just found that such an incredibly powerful thought. So, so I guess one of the things you mentioned, Katie, when you sent me information about what we might talk about was, do I have any tips? <laughs> and I think probably my biggest tip is trust yourself. Yeah. If you've got an idea about this song is working, this song isn't working, I need to do that twice. You will know, you will know, you know, so... And also, I think another huge lesson for me is finding the right collaborator. When I say the right collaborators, you're constantly collaborating with people. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes you work with them again. And I do tend to build very long relationships. So, for example, um, at Sing for Water that you and I have just done, Hazel was a soloist. I worked with her first before Dalston Song, so I've worked with her on off. Then I've had periods where I don't work with her. Barbara has done multiple concerts with me and was in Dalston Songs. Andrew, who was singing in Sing for Water, was in another show that Hazel and I made um, a good 10 years or more ago called White Suit, which was an outdoor show, which was not actually based on interviews. It was based on a testimony. I went to see a charity and they wanted me to do a concert. And then for some reason that didn't happen. And while they were there, they gave me these books that they produced. And one of them had this testimony about a landmine survivor. And this sounds utterly ridiculous, but I knew there was an idea in that. And then when Greenwich, Greenwich Bradley again asked me, do you want to make something? We made this outdoor show that was song theatre. Absolutely. It was theatre. It was all singing. It was staged by Mia Tile Have, who's a Danish director who I was working with. And it was, it was suitable for any age. How can you make a landmine show that's suitable for any age? But it was. Andrew actually played a landmine. Well. But it wasn't taking the piss out of the subject at all. It was somebody who was injured by a landmine um, and lived to tell the tale, basically. It, it's a story about a man in a white suit who goes by and hears a woman injured by a landmine and he doesn't want to help her because he doesn't want to get blood on his suit. Wow. And we very, very slightly shifted the story to make that really, really clear. And I worked with a, a writer for that, Carl Miller, because although I do write lyrics, I don't consider myself 
a writer in that sense. So he wrote the lyrics for that, even though I'd kind of had the shape of it. I knew what it needed to be. And then he and I worked very closely and he did fantastic lyrics for that. Wow, amazing, amazing. These are so powerful stories. And I want to also thank you for for that tip in the middle of saying, you know, in the midst of creating these incredible works, I heard so much risk-taking and so much trust. And of course, the more we trust in ourselves and in our collaborators, then the more risks we can basically take is is what I'm hearing because you had such trust in your collaborators to, to say, yeah, I'll trust you to go right to the wire, even if we change it and we're halfway through the run, that's okay. We'll, I know you'll get the right thing. So that great trust of, um, and then also trusting yourself with such, and your performance with such epic stories and such, you know, such in many ways, certainly all the pieces I've seen that you've, you've created are, they're immensely playful and they're also immensely profound and they're dealing with grappling with some huge, huge issues and topics. And how do you support your performers to, you know, because you were mentioning that the performers will, of course, be anxious and go, I need to learn my lines. I need to know what I'm doing. I need to know where I come on. How do you support them through that post process of trusting more um, so that they can then relax and go, yeah, I'm ready and I'll, I'll be open to changing my performance. I'll be open to shifting something at the last minute. What, what do you do to help them? Yes, you've mentioned two topics there. So I'm going to just yeah. mention about the lightness. So I think I've all, War Correspondence was actually a different kind of thing, but most of the shows I've made, uh, so Dalston Songs and also Truth, used humour. So in Dalston Songs, I did it in a particular way, which it was four women in a cafe. And there were kind of undertones of something going on. There was an outsider, but a lot of it was very, some of it was very funny. And what that did was it opened up and lightened the audience. And then we went into a, a more like an underground cafe and it was just the men. It was nighttime. And there were funny things too. I wrote a song where they played cards and there were other things, but a, a very dark story started to come through. And then the last section had everybody and you got more of that dark story. So it was kind of opening people up so that you can take them, so not so that you can upset them, but so that you can, they are open to something deeper. And I think that happened in truth, that some of the stories that I was given were so powerful and, you know, touch on many people's experience and were very distressing, you know, very tough stories. And you can't, I don't feel I can do that to an audience without also giving them humour. So I was very lucky that we had some really funny funny things too and then I and then there was right in the last um in after the first preview of that show we actually cut one song which is going to come out on the next sorry I'm not trying to um I'm not trying to promote my album what I mean is that song isn't dead but that is on the next album um and it was just too many deaths there were too many deaths in that show so we took one big fat huge fat song out uh, after the first preview uh, because the balance of the show was people were sort of coming up the theatre instead of coming out, yes, moved, but also inspired and kind of alive, you know. So I think it's also having a sensibility for how the public is receiving things. Mm. And then in terms of looking after the performers, it is very, very, most of it is really becomes... Um, in quotes, fixed in time. So this song definitely goes like this. You're definitely on that part. Um, you know, yes, we are going to do it a semitone up. That will be the key. All of those kinds of things get fixed during rehearsals. And, and I think that I'm lucky to work with, there's usually some people on the team who already know me. So they know we will get there. So they probably encourage the others. Mm. And I think also that maybe having somebody like Stephen on the team, I mean, this isn't why he's there, obviously, but um, they know he makes brilliant work. And I, so I think that, you know, there's a certain level of like, and hopefully we choose people who we know are going to be open and 
maybe one of us has worked with or somebody's heard of or not. We have taken Andrew, we took straight from an audition, Leo and I, and he was just great to work with. Um, so I think obviously the show is not going to work unless everybody knows what they're doing. Mm. But cutting a song at the last minute is not a big deal. You've just got to go, okay, so instead of walking there, you walk there and I'm going to give those notes like this. So it's not yes. a big re-rehearsal. It's not like I'm going, oh, by the way, we've got a new verse to this song or a new sure. B section. Or something. It's not like that, you know. So they are very fixed um, eventually, but all the time through the tour, through the tour of Truth, we were constantly refining, you know, and we did, when we toured it again, I added a new song, a new funny song, because I thought, actually, we just need to lighten it. So we did, we did one more thing. Wonderful. Yeah. And it is, sounds like building of trust and, um, and of course, people will know coming into your work and, and have that great respect for you and for Stephen and for the team that it's, it's that building the trust and, and supporting people and having those clear journeys, um, also, I, I just really wanted to come back to what you said about the audience and the impact. You've touched on that a number of times throughout talking, of course, about the impact on the audience and how and obviously you're trying to hold them as well as the performers. And what and uh, one of the things we do here on the Vocal Revolution is ce celebrate the power of voice and celebrate what it does for people. And of course, when we're making work, we don't always get to find that out because our audience sometimes just come and then they go and we don't know what's happened for them. But have you had um, stories of sort of people coming back to you and saying this did this for me or kind of feedback or the impact of the shows? Yes. I mean, very simply, we try to gather feedback in very simple ways, like here's a card on your seat or something. But I think particularly... So I remember at Dawson Songs, probably the first night, three of the people who had been interviewed were sitting in the front row and two Spanish and one English they were. And there was, I could hear them going, that's my bit. <laughs> um, and so there was a lot of excitement at being part of something that was, you know, yes, now a fully staged shebang, you know. But I think in truth would be, well, obviously the impact on the war correspondent. So one particular correspondent, Chris Stevens, who uh, is the Libya correspondent for The Guardian, if he still is, I assume he is. And he came times and he's often talked about, I, I think it was very validating to see your to see what you do respected and described and, and your own experience. Because, of course, in quotes, war correspondents, they wouldn't really like that title. They would prefer journalists working in conflict zones, for example. But um, they, what they are doing is telling the story in Bosnia or telling the story in Iraq or telling the story in Afghanistan their own story does not get told. Mm. I think that's why that was very unusual, you know, for that to be there. And and also Chris came to the show and we went, he went, I know exactly who I know exactly who you are. I mean it wasn't that we knew these people, but he could actually he one of us reminded him of such and such a journalist he'd, he didn't tell us the names, you know, of such and such a journalist he'd worked with. So I think that was very powerful in terms of validation. I mean, this is me speaking out. Obviously, it'd be better if Chris spoke. But in truth, what happened was there were very tough stories. So there was a story about an abuse survivor. And there was a story of someone who had a very, very nasty attack um, because of being gay. Um, and for example, so I would keep from the company who they were. I didn't share with the company whose story was whose. And there was one incident where um, a lovely transgender man, I had two transgender people send me their stories. And this man came to the show. And when his story was on, the two women next to him, he sat in the front row and they would put his arms on him and, and his phone went off and he was all flustered and everything. And so the company kind of said, 
that must be Dan, you know. Um, and and I went up to him after and said, would you like to meet the cast? So that was an unusual circumstance where something became public and he was really proud that his story was part of supporting transgender stories to be told, you know. So that wasn't something that he was wanting to hide. But the... Um, the abuse survivor came to a particular show and she chose to actually go and talk to the person who was representing that story in the cast. And, and then she wrote to me afterwards and it, it meant a lot to her. I, I can't say I'm not that person. I can't say what it meant. Sure. Um, and also the, the song which we cut, which is soon going to come out, I sent it to the person concerned recently, which is about a a woman who died of cancer, died of leukaemia, without the family having realised she was dying because the doctors had told the family that she was going to survive, that yeah. there would be treatment in time. This is many, many years ago. And um, she wrote such a powerful email after I sent her the song and said, you know, this is what I've made of it and this is the recording. And, um, and the main singer on that song, Victoria, has done a very beautiful job. So I think she was very... Happy that hasn't come out yet, so but she knows it is going to come out, and um, and then the person who was attacked because they were gay uh, by people connected to their situation came several times to see the show and gave notes. The cast met them, and nobody nobody worked out it was them. Wow! And um, uh, Stephen knew, but nobody else knew. Yeah, and I think that. I don't know the impact. I haven't asked. I haven't asked them, but but they were very engaged with working with me to get that particular story precise, and and also they they know about making work, so yeah. they were also kind of collaborating in a more active way than a a, a non person who works in the arts would do. You know, so so I think um, I mean those. I'm talking about particular stories. But I find people come up to after shows and say stuff and it just, I can't hear it. I mean, I don't mean I can't hear it. I love it when people say that it's meant something to them or they're moved. And I've got all the writing that people wrote on the cards and, you know, put it in the Arts Council application. But it kind of passes by me. I can't really take it in. I, I just, um, but I'm really happy because obviously why would you make work if it doesn't speak to people? Yes. So it, it does really matter that people respond really 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 matters and I think that probably the biggest one for me was the war correspondence because uh, you know if we'd got it wrong the whole thing would have been a waste of time and that you know that would have been awful uh, and I don't mean there was a right or a wrong but you know it does it you're dealing with people's lives and experiences and they've been generous enough to share it with you and yeah yeah, it's that generosity of people trusting you and trusting, and that's quite a responsibility, isn't it? And there is a responsibility, I think, as an artist, any time we step out and tell a story, especially if it isn't ours and we're representing it, then we have we have a responsibility how we do that and that we do it respectfully and, and honour them and do it to the best of our artistic abilities. Um, so I, I hear you about that, and it's really lovely to hear the stories of people whose stories were part of your work and the impact on them and also yeah the wider audience is a beautiful thing to hear I guess that's how I came into knowing you was through having been myself just exploring music about water and then a friend saying to me you should go and find Helen Chadwick she does this thing called Sing for Water and so then finding myself singing in Sing for Water um, one year and just going wow this is the most extraordinary thing this is what I've always believed singing can do that we can bring our voices together and make a difference potentially to other people around the world which is I know you you describe it and you can say more about how you see the magic of that um but it's one it's another very powerful example of your work being transformative and the power of voice generally being transformative so would you have to just talk a little bit about that magic that is sing for water yes i think that the whole story of sing for water is something that none of us have controlled 
and therefore it has a magic in it. I think the biggest magic is singers coming together to sing sometimes in a mass choir, which is a very powerful experience to do. You know, it can be anything from 200 to 1,000 people, sometimes in smaller groups. And knowing that by singing, whether it's collecting a bucket or they've done a sponsorship form, they are actually doing something that really matters, which is that it is a human right to have access to clean water. So I think that combination of doing something that's such fun and so joyous, and in a way, music is magical anyway, isn't it? You know, we, we have some dots and we open our, our mouths and, and, and sometimes something absolutely moving and powerful happens due to what notes we sing when and so on. So I think they're already in something that's a wonderful experience. And then the fact that it, mean, it means something. So it gives each person who's taking part a sense that they're doing something of value in the world. And I think often it's hard to sense one's value sometimes. Yes. And when you're doing something that you personally value and enjoy and you say, like, you enjoy the magic of music already and then you get to do it. Often in, I mean, for me, I know for many singers coming to the scoop is just a great highlight because it's just such a extraordinary venue and you've got these amazing views of Tower Bridge. So you get to sing with hundreds of people in this amazing place. And on top of all of that, you get your friends and family to come and you're all contributing to something that's much bigger than just having a, a performance. You know, it's actually doing it's contributing to people. Well, it's life saving, basically could be the difference between life and death for some people. And that's, it's also kind of, I always find that that's also incredibly sobering, of course, as well. And it says a lot about injustice, the injustice of this world that, you know, that we have, that it's only 15 pounds, for example, to give one person clean water for life. And that's, it's such an injustice that, that, that we even have to fundraise that, that, that we, that, that, yeah. And so it's so sad. And yet it's so uplifting that we can make that difference and, and do something to, um, what we can do to to maybe amend that injustice or campaign against it so thank you thank you for that for holding the project so lightly as you say you have never controlled it you've always held it so lightly and allowed people to come in and take their own initiative and create their own regional events and that has been a, a lightness of touch and bringing light to some of the most difficult things in in life, some of the most difficult stories, some of the most difficult situations. That for me seems to be an incredible gift that you have. So thank you very much. I think I it's twofold. So I knew that I didn't want to spend my life running a charity because mm. we could have set up a charity called Sing for Water. And I know that I have to make things. I have to make songs and shows and cartoons and you know I just need for my that is what I'm here for is to make songs above all and so I knew that I didn't want to do that and so in fact the fact that it's multiple it's a multi-headed organization you know there's Catherine who did it in Commonwealth Games in Australia who came from Thames and then there's Rowena doing lovely things in Cambridge in the swimming pool and you know, you and Roxanne in London and then there's uh, Chris and Wendy and the team in Bristol and then there's the team in Leicester. And it's like, I think that it was, that was actually a piece of great luck that, uh, it's another tip actually, which is titles. I think that finding a good title is a really powerful act and Sing for Water is a really simple idea. So, you know, having an idea and then letting it flourish. So I, I did it because I need to do other things, but actually the result of me not trying to cling on to it and control it. And maybe that's also to do with, um, obviously I'm most grateful to the collaboration with Thames because I'd had the idea and then they came in and said, we're thinking about doing something with mass choirs, what about it? And so, you know, it was really thanks to that collaboration that the mass choir kind of a thing developed which has happened as well as other kinds of events so it has been led and developed and the fundraising done by 
lots and lots and lots of people and I include all the people who sing in those choirs as well as the choir leaders and all the producers all the people all the people who've actually organized the the um things that you stand on and the sound kit all of those people that make it work you know and to you and Roxanne who've been doing it together with such success in London it's been glorious Thank you. And last last week was a very um, moving tribute and that we were able to somehow bring it together despite the pandemic, despite the weather, despite all sorts of obstacles we encountered. Um, it was felt particularly epic and <laughs> this year. Um, and it's been my incredible honour to to serve the project and and to feel part of something that, as you say, is so wide and so generous and so constantly creating and people coming up with their their own ideas and because you are a creative and you said something very important there about honoring that you're someone that needs to make something and honoring your truth then enables other people I believe to to be their creative truth and to to and that's what I've always experienced around you Helen you you give such permission and you give such trust in the creative process. And I guess that's also from, of course, your very, very wide experience of learning to trust and seeing things happen and making things happen so many times in so many amazing ways. Um, so if you were to give us maybe one final tip about that whole thing about how do we stay true to our creativity? Because so many people, it's so easy to get lost, isn't it? It's so easy to go. You could have easily said, okay, I'll set up a charity. I don't really want to, but hey, I'm going to do it for the best of the project. But actually you didn't. You listened to what was inside of you. You didn't get distracted. You stayed with making song theatre, making songs, being you. And in doing so, you your whole project exploded to a level that you never imagined and many 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 other beautiful joyous things have also come out of that so many projects and so much creativity so what would your I don't know final words be about staying true to our creativity I think there's two things one is it is fascinating that that project has flourished through lack of control and I don't mean chaos Mm. but it is interesting to see that when you suggest you know would anyone like to do another project somewhere and nurture hopefully you know provide what you know talk to people or whatever that things can grow and they grow in their own way and I everybody knows that about children don't they I'm not an educationalist but people know that that's you need to nurture what's there you know that I know this teaching songwriting that if you I've stopped going it'd be better, I mean, I don't know if I ever did this, but, you know, I don't go, it'd be better if you did X or have you thought about Y. All I do when we run songwriting workshops is I go, fantastic, I loved that bit and the way your voice curled into that was fantastic. Uh, And also, before I do that, I will find out what everyone else loves. So we're totally focusing on what is working, what is, and the only thing I will point out is, if somebody hasn't mentioned a structural thing that's really interesting, I will say, oh, did you notice that they moved from having something that was in a canon to something that was in a two-part harmony and then they brought the third harmony in later? Wasn't that a lovely form that they used? So I'll, I'll just point up forms that are working so that people start to collect in their minds. Oh, right, okay. And what I've noticed is the more you do that, the people just make fantastic work really quickly because they just feel like any, any, you know, I can, I can trust myself. It's about trusting. So I guess that's the last thing to say is I think, you know, like I do, if I look at Meredith Monk or I look at um, Laurie Anderson, who I think was, you know, is an amazing artist and is, you know, I look at her and I go, Oh my God, all that technology. I just don't know how to do it. And, you know, and everything. And I, so I think, what I would suggest is no idea is too small. So, you know, you've got like half a phrase or a few words. That's how I start too. I don't start with, it doesn't look like the big picture. I don't have the big, I'm not the kind of, I've got the whole thing lined up. All I have is the trust that with some collaborators, I will be able to make something, whether that's a sound engineer or whether that's some singers or whether that's a choreographer or whether that's just me on my own with, you know, the piano and some manuscript paper or 
um, some home recording kit, that something will get made. And occasionally I throw stuff away and I'm like, nope, that's no good. But most of the time you will arrive at something. So I think it's never, never not do it because you think your idea is too small because everything comes from a small idea. That's a beautiful piece of advice. Thank you. Yeah, and it is, isn't it? It's those little fragments and fragments can, and wisps and sparks. I kind of like seeing them as sparks of inspiration that can sometimes just arrive and they can be very, um, they can appear to be very, just, you know, intangible, but it can be, you know, I often find there's just a sometimes even on the bus, you just get an idea on the bus and think, and that's why uh, have, have, having our voice, we're very lucky we have voice recorders now on our phones and, you know, but it would have been a notebook, you know, just, just take that little moment of inspiration when it lands and then that from that can become anything really, a book, uh, a show, uh, a song, but we've just got to run, give it that space to run with it, isn't it, and nurture it fantastic thank you so much Helen you've been so generous and shared so much with us today uh if people want to come and find you where can they where can they do that it's helenchadwick.com and there are some kind of photos and videos of performances so if anyone wants to look at kind of what are these site-specific things? Uh, some of the, I don't have videos for everything, unfortunately, but the song theatre stuff, there are a few very, very short videos if anyone wants, wants to look at those. And then, and then there's music, you know. Fantastic. And have you got anything particularly coming up that you'd like to invite people to, workshops or anything like that? I think the biggest thing is after very, very slow, it's all about finding the right collaborators. I am bringing out a new recording and also on the website for choir leaders or for anybody actually wants to sing the material, I've at last got my act together to create scores and sound files. So that will also be released, I don't know, within the next month or something. Oh, that's really, really exciting. I know there's so many choir leaders who absolutely love teaching a work, including myself and singing um, teaching it to their choirs and everyone enjoying that together. So that's a wonderful resource. And I can appreciate how much work has gone into creating that. So thank you for sharing your work so generously and allowing other people, again, with that lightness of touch, allowing them to come and enjoy your songs, your stories and and the wonderful creative inspiration that you bring people and encouragement. As you say, you're, you are tremendously affirming. I've experienced that so many times. You just say, yes, Katie, yes, do that. Yes, more of that. <laughs> you have been so tremendously incredible. And so thank you for our friendship and thank you for all you've done for Sing for Water and the amazing body of work that you've created, which is such an incredible legacy and ongoing joy for all of us. So thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. It's lovely to also, I want to mention that you and I, through the whole of the pandemic, have been supporting each other. So a few years ago, I don't know where it came from, I had an idea called Ring Fence, where you would work in parallel with another artist or another anybody. And you and I have been doing that, where we block most days that we can, an hour or an hour and a half, occasionally it's longer, a block of time, and we say what we're going to work on and for me it's usually those things those creative things that don't have deadlines they don't involve other people's deadlines like making albums nobody's waiting for my album except me Uh, or composing sometimes they do have deadlines that yes I've got to write some music for a dance company or something Um, but it's not like I need it today so I'm just most grateful for our collaboration and yeah I think that's another that's another thing, isn't it, which is connect up with other makers and other artists and other healers and, you know, support each other uh, in what we're all doing. Absolutely. It's that joint, that joint support is so important. And as you say, when we're doing creative work, no one is is necessarily jumping on us to do it. But it's it's somebody said once it's doing what just not what only is urgent but what is important and it is important that we honor our creative work that we keep making things if we are makers of things that we keep putting space for that and it's very easy for that precious space to go into serving what is urgent what is you know seems to be on top of the list seems to be on top of everyone else's list seems to be what people will pay for us us for but actually still making it's so important to make time 
for creativity and thank you for teaching me the ring fence because it really is a magical thing it really works it's a magical another magical formula that suddenly just because you know you've got to tell someone at the end of the hour what did you do you become accountable to yourself and your own creativity not in the sense of I'm reporting back and I need someone to tick on a clipboard but it's that honesty of going this is where my process is and someone cares about it and wants to share their process with me and want, and of course we can cheer each other on which is that the most important thing is the support isn't it so that even if one hour well yes I just mostly had a cup of tea and then I faffed around a bit but then actually I spent five minutes writing this amazing lyric <laughs> you go yes <laughs> so thank you for that too Helen yeah our companionship through lockdown has been extraordinary amazing Wonderful. thank you Katie thank you Thank you. And so I just want to also thank everyone who has listened today. I'm sure there's lots and lots of juicy treasures within what Helen said. And I hope that you draw out what is right for you, for your creative journey, and that you stay true to your creative voice and your creative visions and sparks of inspiration and that you go forth and keep creating. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of Vocal Revolution very soon. Thank you again, Helen. Thank you, Katie. Bye. Thank you.